See, that's more like it. You didn't like Top of the Morning. It's not that I didn't like it. I was surprised. I was taken aback okay. by Top of the Morning. Well, you were like, this is not, it's not on brand. For reach. Not on brand. Now I am curious where you're going to go tomorrow, though. Uh, I guess we're on at noon, so yes. it won't be Top of the Morning. I might have to learn. Uh, oh, maybe I'll uh, get some Hungarian lessons there you from go. my wife. There you go. Uh, buongiorno a tutti. Uh, it is uh, Thursday, September 7th, also known as the first day of football season. Let's go. Uh, how did the Detroit Lions end up on Thursday night football to open the season? Like, when has Detroit ever been a draw for the NFL? It's like, what? <laughs> we know we're getting Mahomes on the first yeah. night after he wins the Super Bowl. Why is Jared Goff and the Detroit Lions lining up on the other end? Well, it's wild, too, because, okay, the Lions are a hype team this year, right? Yep. Which is wild because they're the Detroit Lions. But everyone's expecting them to take this big step forward. But the most notable, charismatic, whatever you want to call it, presence on the team, he's not even on the field. It's Dan Campbell, <laughs> right? It's not even like, hey, they've got this great young stud quarterback or, oh, you're you're going to want to watch this guy play. It's like. No, it's Dan, Dan Campbell is the guy <laughs> with the Lions. He's not even playing. He's just the coach. He's just on the sidelines. The thing about the Lions, though, is like they've been so bad for so long that it's very easy for a casual NFL fan to kind of cheer for them, mm. you know? Or it's like, yeah, you know what? I might be a Seahawks fan, but you know, I, there's something about that plucky Lions team that I don't mind watching them win a well, few nobody games hates, here and there. Nobody hates the Lions. Yes. It would be very I mean, I guess maybe some <laughs> NFC North fans but yes. even that, it's like, well, what are you going to do? It would be very odd to have a hatred for the Lions after being one of the most futile franchises in pro sports for a long time. I mean, they were the favorite team on home improvement. You know, they uh... <laughs> I'm surprised our pal Dom hasn't started cheering for him. That's right. I guess yes. home improvement a little before his time. Uh, yeah, it was a little bit before his time. He he, he was more King of Queens yeah. guy, and that's how yeah. he ended up a Jets fan. Shouts to Dom. Uh, all right, 650-650 on the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. We're going to have some uh, bold predictions for the NFL uh, coming up a little bit later on. So if you have one or two, then, yeah, uh, you can send Text them him in. 650-650 on the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. We're going to start today off talking a little bit of hockey. Ian McIntyre is going to join us in a few moments. Uh, his latest piece up on Brock Besser. And uh, it's a good piece. Um, and Brock has always been very candid uh, with iMac and some of his interviews. And I love that. But there is um, – it, it's almost become a Groundhog Day storyline of yes. – is this the year we see the best of Brock Besser? And we've been doing that really ever since his rookie season when mm -hmm. I think we can look back on it and maybe either that year or the North Division season as the best we've seen of Brock Besser through a full season. Yeah, the North Division season is really the one I think that gets lost in the shuffle because he was really good that year. There and just, because it was so strange yeah. and the team didn't do very well and there was so much else going on in that season with COVID disruptions and everything, it doesn't spring to mind for people. It wasn't memorable in the same way. But I do think sometimes people get this idea of it's been a straight downward trajectory since his rookie mm -hmm. season, and that's not true. He was really, really good. That year, right? And, okay, you can have whatever dis uh, caveats you want about the shortness of the season. You know, they were only playing the same teams, whatever. But that's still a bright spot. That's not that long ago at this point. 
that I think if you're counting on or hoping for a Brock Besser bounce back, like that's your strongest evidence that he has shown not just as a flash, a flash in the pan as a rookie, but as a, a player with a few more years under his belt, he's shown he can be a complete winning player in the NHL. It's um, it's tough because yeah, he he was probably the team's best player that year. Yeah, on on merit, you know, he led the team in points. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was healthy the whole season, so this whole you know, Brock never stays healthy. He played all 56 games that year. Now it wasn't an 82-game season, so uh-huh. there is the obvious asterisk next to it on that note. But the issue that we've sort of run into with Brock is he got paid to be a goal scorer, and he hasn't developed into the goal scorer you thought he would mm-hmm. to this point of his career, right? Like, Why does Brock get close to $7 bucks? If, if Brock was, you know, a 20-ish goal guy with 50 to 60 points, you're, you're taking that most years, but you don't want to pay that guy next to $7 million, right? You pay the guy that makes $7 bucks. you want that guy scoring more than 30 goals. And that's what we all expected Brock to be. It's just not who he's turned out to be. So the two-way presence and... Being more of that goal-scoring threat, that's ultimately what the Canucks need from him. You know, and even in that North Division season, uh, the 30-goal mark has become a big talking point of Brock Besser. Yeah. Because obviously injuries cut it short in the rookie season, and then, you know, last year we all remember the quote at training camp, injuries and and poor play prevents it from happening again. But you look at that North Division season, you stretch it out over to 82 games, you know, assuming he would have been able to stay healthy, and he would have cracked 30 goals that year. So the goal-scoring ability again not that long ago just a couple of seasons ago was there we don't look at it as a 30 goal campaign it wasn't but that was because of factors outside of his control so again that's the that's the year and kind of the standard I'm looking at where you know maybe coming off his rookie year there were thoughts of could this guy be a 40 goal scorer put that aside right but if he can get to yes 30 goals stay healthy 30 goals and the kind of two-way all-around game he had in the North Division season that's a pl- we talked about this earlier in the week reach like the Canucks need legit high-end top six wingers to step up and the player I just described is a legit high-end top six winger that could really help this team uh Brock Besser a big part of the preseason as usual and a big part of uh you know the Canucks hope for this year let's bring in our next guest he wrote his latest piece at sportsnet.ca about one Brock Besser he's the triple threat here on Sportsnet it is Ian McIntyre what's happening iMac well, not too much. Seems like hockey season is on again. Yeah, we're we're uh, we're pretty much getting there. September hits after Labor Day. It's like okay, let's get ready for training camp now. So fire up the fire up the take machine and let's go. Yeah, it's uh, interesting to see so many guys here. The uh, day and day after Labor Day, the the week of Labor Day week and and skating, they heeded the coach's call to report early and we'll see if it makes we'll see if it makes a difference because this of course a lot of it is is Rick Tockett trying to set his culture but a lot of it as well is just the the starts the last two seasons and there's some other starts that weren't very good either but especially the last two seasons were just so poor uh, the team wasn't able to recover and I think that you can trace those poor starts to the regular season directly to poor preparation in training camp through injuries and absences and dysfunction, as was the case last year. So we'll see if all this uh, all this uh, preamble to the season for the players 
pays dividends in October. We'll get we'll get to your piece on Brock in a minute, but t- touching on that, you know, you, you recently spoke to Rick Tockett at Sportsnet.ca as well, and you know, that part of this conversation feels um, important. You know, getting off to the strong start, but there doesn't seem to be that dysfunction. There is definitely a feel of everybody is pushing in the same direction because last year's training camp. Uh, with all the storylines, you know, Bo Horvat not having a contract, JT Miller getting a contract, all these different things. But mainly in the background, it was always Bruce Boudreau is still trying to prove himself to this new front office. Well, that, yeah, you're right. And, and that was the background from the start of training camp. And let's remember as well that it had been a very high profile thing with Bruce saying publicly that he thought he deserved an extension and Jim Rutherford saying publicly no, he doesn't. We'll see. And so that that was the context as the team entered training camp last year. And then when they started 05 and 2, that was like rocket fuel onto this story about the disconnect between between management and coach and you know from that point everything was just desperation and and Boudreau understandably was coaching every game like if he didn't win it uh he could be fired and although desperation is a good thing you can have too much of it (laughs) and that filtered that filtered down through the players it is a material difference in the organization that rick talkett was chosen by patrick alvin and jim rutherford and although Tockett has pressure to win as well, because clearly they're going for the playoffs, and anything short of that is going to be a monumental disappointment. So there's pressure on Tockett as well. But if, if by chance, heaven forbid, the team started 0-5-2, I don't think he's going to start to change the way he coaches because he's afraid he's going to get fired because he has, he has the support of, of this regime and he's going to get a longer runway and that makes a massive difference in the coach's authority and what he has uh, the latitude and permission to do to get the players to play the way he wants to play to build the culture that he thinks the organization should have you know you talk about potential pressure and the team going for the playoffs and there is going to be that pressure on the team right from the start of the season I, I did think it was really interesting in your interview with Talkit. you asked him about the the comments from Elias Pedersen and the the feeling that you know he kind of wants to see how the season unfolds before he's willing to commit to a long-term extension and Talkit talked about you know checking all of the boxes every day showing Pedersen that uh, it's a well-run organization how much extra pressure does the Pedersen situation put on, you know, the team, but also the coaching staff and really management, the organization top to bottom? Well, it, add, it adds another layer. I, I think it's a thin layer because that pressure is going to be there anyways, but it, it, it certainly adds more. I think from, from the start of this story breaking, of course, it was our colleague Elliot Friedman who sat down with Pedersen on a boat in, in Sweden and very nice boat, I heard, by the way. Very nice boat, probably. You know, you know how Elliot travels. <laughs> I don't know about Petey, but you know how Elliot rolls. Um, really, from the start, I had a very good talk that day with Pat Brisson, uh, Pedersen's agent. 
And and I think it was clear this this isn't about you know typically when players wait uh, on a deal like this it's because the negotiations haven't found traction the sides are far apart the player thinks he's worth a lot more money and it's it's all about money and occasionally with the <clears throat> what's happened in the NHL the last few years occasionally it's about salary cap space which is what it was the last time. Pedersen signed his bridge deal. They, they didn't. They couldn't go seven or eight years. But I, I don't think, and I stand to be made a fool. Uh, I don't think this is is driven by Pedersen thinking. Well, if I wait, I'll get more. I, if he waits and has a great year, he will get more. Uh, don't get me wrong. But I think from the time this story has emerged, it is about he wants to see how Pedersen does, how all these changes. Are are going to play out? That on yeah, everything looks great about what they've done to try to improve, and that this team, if you look at you know really how they played for big chunks of the last two seasons, especially the second halves, after they had played themselves out of it, you know the the team should be ready to launch. It should be ready to take a significant step forward this season. Uh, but, you know, Pedersen wants, I think he wants to see, is it going to? So, and I'm not, you know, I'm not going to put a number on it and say, well, if they don't make the playoffs then Pedersen's not going to resign, because I think there's a very good chance that he still would resign a massive deal uh, as long as he sees that the organization is going in the right direction and that there's harmony. I mean, look at it from a player's perspective. Um you know, JT Miller said to me last year that the the first half of the season was a beep show. And I would have just said what he said, but I don't know how what your sensors were like on morning radio. Yeah. And, and and it was. I mean, it's just been constant upheaval and drama around this team the last two seasons. That gets very uh tiring mentally on players. You know, by the time the organization fired Bruce and brought in Rick last year. The players were just exhausted mentally and emotionally with everything that they had endured, witnessed, heard about, read about to that point. So uh, I don't blame Pedersen or any other player in this organization for wanting to just, if, if they have that chance, to take a step back and say, well, let's see how this season goes. Let's see if this new harmony in the organization from top to bottom uh, actually manifests itself in a more successful and enjoyable team to play for because last year wasn't fun for anybody. Yeah, last year wasn't fun. Uh, the the tail end of the the Travis Green era was uh, not that great, and then the North Division year. So you can say each of the last three years have had their own bits of chaos to them for the Vancouver Canucks. And and for sure, you know, a player like Elias Pettersson of his caliber, or he knows he can essentially pick where he wants to play, and if he wants to win somewhere, you know, that's going to factor into his decision because the money's always going to be there for for a player like that. I, ultimately, I, I think Pettersson wants to feel. Like there's there's more than just him and and Quinn Hughes uh, here in Vancouver that's going to help them win and and sure you know J T Miller Thatcher Demko there's other players there's other pieces of the core but 
I think there's an element of Pedersen needs to see that there's there's more around him um, to to feel like it's it's actually going to work in the short and medium term to actually win more hockey games here in Vancouver. Yeah, I I think so. And I, I think what the the changes they've made this summer, basically with with the flexibility they got from the Ekman Larson buyout, is all about building out the bottom of the team. Right, they get two two depth centers, and I'm not sure still that they have a third line center. But in in Suter and Bluger, they get two really capable depth guys at a very important position. And then on defense with Susie and Cole, that's not even the bottom of the defense. That's somewhere in the middle of the defense that that they're building out. But this is, you know. At this point, it's theoretical. Are they really better? We're, we're going to find out, and so is Pedersen. Uh, you have a piece up right now talking to Brock Besser at Sportsnet.ca, IMAC, and a really interesting piece. And, you know, as you note in the piece, it does seem like we're kind of at, in a similar place with Brock Besser going into this season. But uh, as he notes, you know, healthy this year, uh, which is different from the last couple of years going into training camp, or at least last year it was an injury in training camp. You know what? In your view, what does a bounce back season look like for Brock Besser for the Canucks this year? Well, it, it would be nice if he scored thirty goals, but I don't. Th- I don't think that's the line in the sand. I think it's going to be more difficult to quantify because I think a bounce back season for Brock is going to be about engaging in a nightly on, on a nightly basis to really plugging himself into a game and playing the type of style that Rick Tockett wants this, wants this team to play. And it doesn't mean, you know, running around and hitting people because that's never going to be his game. But he, he has had so much on his mind and has, and has had to deal with, with injuries. And remember, before Pearson went out last year, Brock Besser came back and went out again, you know, after a procedure on on his hand. And luckily, the infection that he had wasn't uh, anywhere near as severe. And he came back and played. And and actually, you know, point total wise, was it 55 points? You know, it wasn't it wasn't uh, an an awful season. But we saw that his possession numbers just cratered. And we also saw at times that he w- he just seemed to be, you know, on a different uh, a different style than than what other guys were trying to do under talk. And again, uh, you know, Brock Besser is 26. He's an incredibly skilled player, and like anybody who gets to this level, he's really dedicated and and driven. Um, but he has to. He has to just compete and engage and be a factor. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. Just be a factor on more nights than, than what he was last season. And if he can do that, I have no doubt that he's going to be able to score. Like People have often discussed, well, is his shot ever going to be the same? Is, is, is his wrist, you know, did it suffer permanent damage in that rookie season when he had a problem and and underwent a procedure uh, but i i've seen him 
score enough since then, regardless of how his wrist is, that he can he can put the puck in the net at at this level. But you you have to really uh, engage and and you know play with play with emotion and passion uh, every night uh, to do that. And it, it'll also be interesting to see because he he looks really lean yesterday as well. And these guys as they age. If they're smart, uh, they they all get in better condition. You know, the Sedins are are the best example of what they looked like at the end of their their career physically, from what they looked like at the beginning. And Brock looks leaner to me, and and he says he's stronger based on his on his summer conditioning. Is that going to translate into a a little bit faster? Is he going to be you know a half step quicker? to to get to a puck not not blazing breakaway speed kind of thing but has he got that half step to get to a puck sooner and and make a play and that'll be a big factor as well for him well i think it's it's so massive for this team too because speaking to some of the the moves they made in the offseason iMac you know they were bottom six types they were let's fix the penalty kill let's fix some of our defensive woes uh, at the lower end of our lineup and they didn't make any additions that are going to really pop offensively so to replace Bo Horvat's goals in this lineup uh, they're going to need a player like Brock to to find his old form and you know, I, I'd like to sit here and say that I could see Vasily Podkolzin finally having the breakout or Nils Hoaglander or somebody like that, but more realistically, it's it's got to come from a player like Brock Besser. Yeah, yeah, although it could, it could, it would help. If, it would help if, if the young uh, guys Pod did Colson it too. scored yeah. 18 goals, yeah, you know, yeah. it's, and talk, it did talk about doing things by committee and he used the example of, of Vegas which is a great example, but I don't know how relevant it is to the Canucks for where yeah. those teams are in their arc at the moment. But, you know, Vegas had players who played up and down, up and down the lineup, and they were strong throughout. So strong, in fact, that Teddy Bluger couldn't get in the lineup for the Stanley Cup final, and Bluger's a decent player. I don't think, though, Dan, that scoring is going to be the problem. It will be a problem some nights. They'll go three games where they only score, you know, two goals. Mm-hmm and don't get any wins and and we'll be talking about it but big picture over the course of 82 games i don't think the offense is the problem with this team although they do need to find a more permanent replacement in the bumper for Bo on the power play i think it's <clears throat> i think it's all about sort of systems play and defending and i would argue with your initial statement that you know, the penalty kill was like a bottom six move because their penalty killing was historically bad last season and was so bad in the first, what, 20 or 25 games that penalty killing alone uh, cost them games. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, if, you, if they could get their penalty killing to league average instead of as it was for last season – the worst it had been in NHL history since penalty killing became a recorded stat in the 1970s, that will translate to several more wins. And when you look at how fine the line is, how how broad the mosh pit is of, say, teams from, what, number eight in the league to number 22 or four in the league, how big the mosh pit is and, and the 
how thin the difference of making the playoffs or not, I think the penalty killing could be a huge factor. But in the end, this season, uh, the single, individually, the, the, the most important player to this team is Thatcher Demko because they need a solid season from him throughout, not the first half that he had last year. And then it's going to be team play. And how much better are they at controlling play and keeping the puck out of their own net under Tockett? And and special teams, the penalty killing, obviously, is a huge part of that. Did you enjoy your summer, IMAC? I had a fantastic summer. Oh, that's, lo- that's lovely. I had the best summer holiday I've had since I was a kid. Uh, I know that you're a fan of my photographic Oh, that work. picture I, from Switzerland I was, was. just going to say, I loved the travel photos I, on Twitter. I thought you were Stunning, like, stunning. I thought you yeah, took well, it, you. stole it from Getty Images, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're good, too. <laughs> Jeff Vinick, uh, our friend who shoots a lot of uh, Canuck stuff, Getty Images. Um, no, I had, a, I had a great summer and a nice long break, and I feel recharged. And, and frankly, I think we all needed to feel recharged yes. after what we've witnessed. You know, three coaches in two seasons, the regime change, the upheaval, all the off-ice drama, the constant rumors about contracts and trades and and you know we're not clear of that yet, obviously with with Pedersen, but I don't think there's, you know, the, the J.T. Miller and the Bo Horvat trade watch. I, I think those are over now. So uh, we all needed a little bit of a a bit of a break, and I got uh, a good long one. So I'm ready to go here. I feel very lucky with the summer I've had. That's great to hear. We'll see you soon, IMAC. See you guys. Nice being on with you again. I look forward to future visits thanks yes. i'm uh there he is ian mcintyre the triple threat maybe quadruple we're gonna have to add photography i mean the the photography of of one ian mcintyre is just um it's next level it was like it seriously tourism switzerland <laughs> could pull that and pay him a fee and use it like look this is what we have to offer I, i've never really considered going to switzerland before yeah. but i saw it i was like you know what that looks pretty nice uh switzerland has uh some like Beautiful British Columbia vibes where it's just like you could take a picture anywhere right. and it would yeah, look yeah, yeah, unreal. Yeah. Um, but I'm acting a good job with that one. The colors really popped That's in right. the photo. You know, you love to see that. Um, Dan Rachel and You Jamie do love Dodd. to see that. <laughs> So um, we'll pick up off something IMAC mentioned there. Uh, the most important player to the Canucks season. Um, he mentioned Thatcher Demko. We talked about Brock Besser. Uh, 650-650 on the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. You could chime in on that as well. We'll get more into the Canucks chatter next. It is Sportsnet Today on Sportsnet 650. The single individually the, the, the most important player to this team is Thatcher Demko because they need a solid season from him throughout, not the first half that he had last year. And then it's going to be team play. And how much better are they at controlling play and keeping the puck out of their own net under talking? And and special teams, the penalty killing, obviously, is a huge part of that. That was uh, Ian McIntyre from earlier in today's edition of Sportsnet Today with Dan Richo and Jamie Dodd. IMAC brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. As you can be a champion on the worksite, find them together online at DLEAMC.com. IMAC always uh, bringing the takes, always uh, doing good stuff, including photos. Um, 
Thatcher Demko is the most important player of the season. It, I mean, it, it almost feels like a layup to say that the goalie yeah. is the most important player of almost any hockey team, but with the Canucks still very much a team in transition towards hoping to be a more defensively solid squad, a uh, competent, extremely competent goaltender will help them get off to a better start this year. Yeah, season. I mean, you could go through a lot of teams in the league, right, yeah. and say goalie most important or one of if one of the most important players, certainly. But Not everybody know, can be Vegas or Colorado. No, exactly. Right? But, you know, we, we also had this conversation earlier in the week, Reach, where – I think IMAX probably right that Thatcher Demko is the most important player, but also one of the things the Canucks are trying to strive towards is be a team that isn't as reliant on their goalie as they are, right? As a team that you can look at and say, you know what? If Thatcher Demko has a slump for a month, it's yeah. not going to sink their playoff chances, which is how it feels right now. So I think it's fair, but it's also it's almost unfair to put that much pressure on Thatcher Demko, right? And ask him to cover up for the flaws in front of the team over and over and over again. Yes, he is going to be their most important player, but the team also has to find a way to advance beyond that at some point. If you look at the, um, okay. Um, just a very, uh, early in September power ranking of the Western conference. You can get mad at me if this is not how it looks like to you, but, Colorado, L.A., Edmonton, and Vegas. I think you could say some combination of that. Maybe you'd throw Dallas in there as, mm -hmm. as another team. But Dallas doesn't fit my narrative on this subject. So I'm leaving Dallas out. Okay. Of those four teams, you would not really say any of them are all that solid in goal. Right? Like, none of them rely nope. heavily on their goaltender. Colorado won a cup with Darcy Kemper playing – uh, with like one eye, you know, he was really injured through their playoff run and did not play all that well. Uh, LA is basically just punted goaltending altogether. Like you've been going through your fantasy drafts, like I'm going with no running backs. Well, LA is like, man, we don't really need a goalie. Like yep. Phoenix yep. Copley and whoever else. We'll figure it out. Edmonton's got Stuart Skinner and Vegas. Yeah, they've got uh, Aiden, uh, Hill. Aiden Hill, who they just signed to a nice little contract extension. But Aiden Hill was fifth on their goalie death chart last year before they really ran through it through the course of the year. And he ran with it during their playoff run to the Stanley Cup. So none of the top four teams in the West are all that reliant on their goaltender. And the Canucks, I mean, it seems like every team is striving towards being more yep. of that because if you don't have to spend as much on your goalie, well, that gives you the opportunity to build a more solid, in theory, a more solid team in front of them. Now, goal. the unique thing about the Canucks is if they ever got a full season of really high-level goaltending from Thatcher Demko, they're they're not spending that much, right? No. So they there's a possibility. They have a potentially Vesna Trophy-winning goalie. Yeah for a discounted price. There's a possibility for them to almost have the best of both worlds. You know yes. what I mean? Not spend that much, especially when you look at what they're spending on their backup, which they went cheap again, yep. right? Understandably so. You know, their total spend on the goaltending position could be very, very minimal, and the potential reward with Thatcher Demko is pretty high. Now, I am curious, though. Let's say we took Thatcher Demko out of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Who would you kind of highlight as most important player? Is it, does it just come down to Pedersen or Quinn Hughes? Because I could look okay, at it so as... So leave the core four out of it, right? Pedersen, Hughes, Miller, and Demko. Who's the most important player beyond that? Well, I think it's got to be Hironic, right? Yeah. It has to be, just in terms of 
somebody with enough theoretical upside and also filling a role that this team just has not had as like the second, I don't want to say star level defenseman, but clear cut, no doubt about it, you know, top three caliber defenseman. When was the last time this team had somebody like that behind Quinn Hughes? Like Chris Tanev? Yep. Really, that's probably it. And so, Tanev was Quinn Hughes's, uh, you know, defense partner. Yep. So it wasn't. It wasn't even spread out. No, it wasn't. The you, so as somebody who can anchor a second pairing and give you really good results, I mean, I think it has to be Hronik. And you know, look, you said keep the core four out of it, but a guy I was going to look at was JT Miller. Yeah. In terms of most important players, and the the offensive well, when, production as a whole was there, but the rest of his game. Yeah, where where is he at? Like those are the two guys that stand out to me: Miller and Hronik. What have been? What has been? Um, a key element of the Canucks having a strong finish to each of the last two seasons. JT Miller getting on a roll, playing like an absolute beast mm-hmm. as a centerman. Right during the Boudreaux era, he was just like <laughs> through that, like from the. From the moment Bruce Boudreau took over, the 56 games or whatever it was that Boudreau, 57 games, coached the Canucks, and they were on the 106-point pace, there was, like, only a handful of players in the entire NHL that had more points than JT Miller through that stretch. And he was playing it basically always as a centerman. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was my biggest argument against everybody being like, JT Miller's not a center at the start of last year. It's like the best hockey we'd seen him play was as a centerman, right? And it almost didn't matter who you played with JT Miller during that run. He was playing with like Garland and Pod Colson. Great. He played with Pearson and Besser. Besser, They were amazing. They were one of the best lines in hockey through the back end of the season. At five on five as well. So the idea that he can't play at even strength, uh, most parts last year always felt a little bit lost on me because of how well we saw him play at the end of the Boudreaux era and also, or at the start of the Boudreaux era, I should say, and then at the start of the Rick Tockett era. But uh, JT Miller being that player in October is so important. Well, that's the thing. We've seen the the start of this season. We've seen the highs and the lows. Yeah. Right? Like the highs are undeniable that you're describing under Bruce Boudreaux and even, you know, to a slightly lesser degree, but still there under Rick Tockett last year. But we also saw a a pretty significant stretch at the beginning of last year. And yeah, you can point to all of the external factors. I think that's fair to a degree, but, you know, Elias Pettersson was thriving with those external factors swirling around the team as well. It is possible to thrive in those conditions. So the question is, what version of JT Miller do we get? And kind of where in that spectrum, from the highs to the lows, where can he kind of settle? And the concern for me is not so much what his final point total looks like, because as long as he's the guy running the power play, the kind of de facto power play QB, he's yeah. going to put up his points, and he's really good he's at gonna that. Be, he should be around a point yeah. a game. He's really, really good at the power play, so he's going to be just fine in terms of point production. But, I mean, how much did we talk about last year, his five-on-five scoring rates? They were not that good. No. Those need bad. to come up. Those need to be significantly better, especially now when you consider how this team is structured down the middle, right? It's not the three-headed monster of Pedersen, Horvat, and Miller anymore. Pedersen, Miller, and Horvat. Patterson and Miller are going to be relied on to do 
almost all of the heavy lifting at the center position. So I I don't think it's enough for JT Miller just to be racking up points on the power play and kind of treading water at five on five. I think he needs to be that elite player in all situations for them. Uh, I know a lot of people won't agree with me on this, but I I almost felt as though uh, a lot of what was happening with Miller, you know, was also a product of what was happening around him. You know, Brock Besser got off to an incredibly slow start last year after he suffered the injury at the end of training camp. Tanner Pearson, before he suffered that unfortunate injury, was having a terrible start Mm -hmm. to his season as well. So those things are happening around JT Miller. And now all of a sudden, Bruce Boudreaux is like, I don't even have enough wingers to to spread around here. So I got to move JT to the wing and have him play with Bo Horvat. And then we started to see JT sort of come out of it a little bit. If this team has Besser playing well out of the gate, I know Ilya Mikheyev is sort of a bit of a question mark. We don't mm-hmm. know how much of a participant he's going to be at the start of training camp and through the course of the preseason, but him being closer to full health, potentially full speed, helps the Canucks in their top six. Anthony Beauvillier, like all of these guys, the middle six types, which one of them is going Steps to up. Yeah. step up a little bit? And really provide the Canucks with something a little but bit more. You know what? The flip side of that, though, is you want to see JT Miller at his price point now and the role he's going to play on this team be somebody who can elevate the players yeah. around him. Like, I hear you. It's always, yeah. there's always a two way street. You know, you need a players of a certain caliber, but look. Look at the rotating cast that Elias Pettersson had at certain points last year. Like, Lane Peterson gets a chance on his wing. He's scoring goals. Yeah. Because he's Elias Pettersson. And now, look, Miller's not going to be that caliber of five on five player. Pettersson's one of the best five on five producers in the game. But you need to have some ability where, okay, hey, we do have to shuffle things around. Miller, you're not getting your normal line mates. We're playing, you know, Dakota Joshua on your wing. We're playing Niels Hoaglander on your wing tonight because of whatever circumstances. You have to have the faith that Miller can drive that to be a legit second line still, right? That it doesn't need to be the perfect scenario around him for to be him to be super effective. Um, on, on the idea of bounce-back candidates – there are um, not so many that you could point to. Of course, Besser's the big one. I Miller think. doing yeah. it over the course of a full season. Yeah. Besser, who we've talked about a ton already and is going to be talked about ad nauseum through the course of, of training camp. Like I've always liked Besser's game, his overall game. I think we penciled him into a corner that he's just this goal scorer, and he's a lot more as a player than that. But you still need him to be – one of the Canucks' top goal scorers if they're going mm-hmm. to have a successful season. The um, storyline around Tanner Pearson right now is very interesting to me. I still wonder you know, if he'll be able to pass his physical when they get into official training camp, but we'll see how that story plays out. It's just good to see Pearson back out on the ice right now in some of these summer workouts, but it clouds one of the preseason storylines even just a little bit more. Bounce-back candidates – Pod Colson and Hoaglander both fill that You're right. sort of question mark because Hoaglander, we've been looking for that bounce back ever since his rookie year. Pod Colson really finished the Boudreaux season wrong, uh, well, and then never really got going last year. But with all of these wingers around, you look at how and where Hoaglander and Pod Colson are going to carve out a spot. In order to be a bounce-back candidate, in order to be a breakout candidate, you have to have some level of an opportunity. Got to be in the lineup. And I just don't know where their opportunity is going to come. Well, they're right going to have to earn it. They're going to have yeah. to claim it, right? And 
we've talked so much about how important training camp is and mm-hmm. how important preseason, the early season is. And it goes double for those guys. Because as you say, to get to even, and you know, you look at both of them, they're really in that this season, maybe next, where they're trying to define what their their career is going to be in the NHL. Mm-hmm. And Pod Colson, yeah, 10th overall pick. That's great. But that only lasts so long. And eventually you're just, you know, another guy who has trouble getting out of the bottom six. Same thing with Niels Hoaglander. Eventually you're just another guy. Yeah, you had a nice rookie season, but eventually you're just another guy that coaches don't seem to trust and you find yourself in the press box uh, a lot of the time. If If they're going to avoid that fate, they're going to have to be able to claim spots from some of the players above them on the depth chart, right? And it starts in training camp. I like both of their games. But again, it's just a question of for a team that is so focused on making the playoffs this year, that is so focused on getting out of the gate well, avoiding a bad start, can they afford to, you know, speculatively give somebody like Vasily Podkols in minutes, right? Or is it going to be Rick Tockett looking at it and saying, you know what? I trust Phil DiGiuseppe. Mm-hmm. So he's going to be there with JT Miller. Sorry, Vasily Podkols, and I just don't quite trust you yet. That's a very fair decision for Rick Tockett to make, but it illustrates how tough it's going to be for Pod Colson and Hoaglander to take those next steps. And uh, both Bavillier Garland still around, so yep. you know, there's just not a ton of spots available in the top nine for a Nils Hoaglander or a Vasily Pod Colson. For Hoaglander especially, I think he just has so much to prove to this coaching staff. You know that uh, he can be a player that makes better decisions, that he focuses on the details of the game. I just I I don't think he's ever going to be able to score enough to be a player that can get away with not having a lot of the fundamentals down and just ingrained into his game. So we're going to have to see how that plays out. Both of those players already uh, here and uh, training with some of these summer skates as it happens. Um, The other uh, thing I wanted to get to some of these texts that have been coming in, Matt, in no way do the Canucks make the playoffs unless Demko returns to form. Uh, This one from Leaf hater Steve. The only chance the Canucks have this year is if every player has a career year. They can't afford to have anybody having an off year. They aren't deep enough. One key injury, and they're done. I don't know about career year, but let's run through it. Hughes, Patterson, Miller, Demko, and I would throw Hronick in there as well. If any one of them have an off year. Mm-hmm. So they don't need to have career years, but if they have a notably poor year, yeah. it's going to be a tough spot. It's going to be, it's going to be really tough for the Canucks to overcome any of those. So I see where Leaf or Steve is going to play devil's advocate last year. Elias Pettersson career year, mm-hmm. Andre Kuzmenko a million times better than anybody could have yep. expected. Quinn Hughes, exceptional. Quinn Hughes was one of the top scoring defensemen in the league. Bo Horvat was on a mm-hmm, 50-goal mm-hmm. pace until he got traded away from Vancouver. I mean, they had players on pace for career years. It was the most, oh, points aren't everything moment that you could have as a hockey fan. Like, if you didn't notice that last year with the Vancouver Canucks, then you weren't paying attention, right? It was, yeah, but they scored at a great rate for much of the year, and it didn't matter a lick because they couldn't stop anybody on the penalty kill and they couldn't save the puck. Like they, they didn't have any goalies making saves. They had the worst defense in the league. It was just everything went against them that they didn't need to 
even though so many guys were having career years. But I think but the thing was, okay, Pedersen and Hughes weren't just having career years in terms of point production. They were having career years in terms of the overall impact. Like Pedersen, those weren't empty calorie points for Elias Pedersen. He yeah. was super impactful on the ice. Same thing with Quinn Hughes. Oh, it and, didn't matter. Yeah, well, and that's and that's I think gets to Leaf Hater Steve's point though is last year you had two of your star players having absolutely lights out, incredible top of the league seasons from Pedersen and Hughes. Miller down, but still producing offensively. Horvat, as you said, on pace for a ton of goals while he was here, and it didn't matter because of the depth, because of the rest of the roster, because there weren't those really solid performances from your middle six guys, from you know the bottom four on your blue line. So let's say if, you know, Hughes or Pedersen doesn't quite have the season that they had last year, I think this is Leaf Hader Steve Point, has the depth improved enough that you can manage down seasons from one or more of those players? I think that's the big question because we've already seen them playing well, them playing really, really well. Pedersen and Hughes being great is not enough to drag this team to the playoffs. You need more from the rest of the guys on the roster, and that's still the big question. Here's some numbers I was just thinking of just now. If... Pedersen slips to, say, 85 to 90 points. Miller is just a shade above 70-plus. And let's say Quinn Hughes gets to about 60 points. All drops for all three of those guys. But the Canucks are in the top half of the league, overall defensively goals against, and penalty kill. Could that be enough to get him into the postseason? If they're in the top half of the league in those other categories, I think it could, for yeah. sure. It, yeah. it, it makes them um, probably about a slightly above 500 team. Yeah. You know, and and a team that's kind of on the fringes of the playoff race, which is where we sort of expect them to be. Um, now, I think they're good enough to be a playoff team, but that's just my humble opinion. I've been wrong on that opinion the last couple of years, <laughs> so very wrong on it. And it, to speak to your point, Eddie, especially the penalty kill. Now, like yeah. each of the last two seasons, the bad starts to last season and the season prior overall, like especially the, the end of the Travis green era, like they were fine defensively mm-hmm. five on five. They were fine defensively. They couldn't score to save their lives for that whole 25 game yep. stretch. And they were giving up two goals a night on the penalty. Kill. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, it's funny. Cause it's not even hyperbole <laughs> or like, it's like barely hyperbole. It's barely hyper. Like every <laughs> single night they were giving up at least it was so bad. One or multiple goals yeah. on the penalty. They were starting every game down, down one. one. It, remind, <laughs> it reminds me of conversations I've had with junior hockey coaches that have coached really, really good teams that knew that they were going to go into every game up one to nothing because they were so explosive. Yeah. It was at the opposite end for how the Canucks played at the National Hockey League level. Yeah. It's like uh, everything um, you know. Travis Green did that year. He set the team up to play well defensively, to play with more structure, and they did. They were legitimately executing, but Patterson couldn't score. Patterson was going Mm -hmm. through the worst stretch of his career, Mm -hmm. and the team just overall could not score to save their lives, and they gave up so many games on the penalty kill. It was – I mean, it's it's fascinating even just to look back at it and think about it again, even more so than last year. Like, last year was – the start of last season was a complete train wreck. Like, they weren't defending well at yep. all. The, the, there was just not a whole lot of good going on outside of Pedersen and Hughes, and it really showed up. Well, and I, I think it's a little simple, but there's also some truth to it. When you look at it and say, under the last part of Travis Green, they could defend 5-on-5, five five, but they couldn't score. 
And then Bruce Boudreaux basically said... Demko was also playing really well. Yeah. So it wasn't just that they were defending Bruce well. Bruce Boudreaux basically said, okay, go score some goals, yeah. and we'll let Demko stand on his head, which he did. So yeah. the goal-scoring numbers didn't look terrible, but the defensive structure was yes. terrible, right? Yes. The defensive underlying numbers were terrible. And you can kind of look at it and say, okay, if this team... With this collection of players, or roughly the same collection of players over those two seasons, if they prioritize offense, they can get it done, but they're going to give it up on the back end. And if they go the other way, they can get it done defensively, but they can't score at a high enough rate. The question really is, and again, it's more complicated than that, but can they do both at the same time, right? Okay, it's great to be able to do one, but if you're going to make the playoffs, you have to be at least a decent five-on-five team in both directions. You can't be you can't be completely sacrificing offense or defense uh, for the benefit of the of the other one. And I think that's the open question is, can this team, under Rick Tockett, find a way to not be elite at both, right? No, You don't need to be a top five, five-on-five scoring team. But can you be at least average, above average at both of those things simultaneously throughout the year? I think it's an open question yeah. about this group, given what we've seen the last couple of seasons. Uh, Marcus uh, in Gibson's with a similar thought on the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. They're kind of like the Jays. Great pitching and nothing on the other side to support it. There needs to be balance. You can't outscore your problems on defense, and you can't outdefend your lack of ability to score. That's from Marcus and Gibsons. And, yeah, it's led to the Jays being uh, a fringe playoff team when they should be mm-hmm. a very you know, comfortable playoff team, at least with the talent they have available to them. And that's why the Canucks spent so much of this offseason trying to fix the defense. Yeah. Right. You know, they didn't they knew they didn't have the money to get another real true impact player at the top of the lineup. They made that move when they traded for Philip Peronic. So they went about trying to fill in the holes, the gaps that they could with the money they had available to them. And I feel they've done a pretty good job. We'll see if they're able to execute as we get into training camp and the start of the season in the next month. NFL season starts tonight. It's the Chiefs and the Detroit Motor City Lions. We'll get into the NFL, some of our bold predictions, and yours, 650-650 on the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. It's coming up next on Sportsnet Today with Dan Riccio and Jamie Dodd on Sportsnet 650.